in today's podcast, we do delve into some sensitive and potentially triggering topics. Viewer discretion is advised or listener discretion is advised, particularly around children and young people. And if you or anybody you know is suffering with mental health challenges, we strongly encourage you to seek professional support. Welcome back to the Working on Wellbeing podcast by the World Wellbeing Movement. The podcast that allows you to be a fly on the wall during conversations with the world's leading wellbeing experts. I'm your host, Sarah Cunningham, and in today's episode, we've hit the road to meet a trailblazing woman who made the headlines when she became the world's first Minister for Loneliness back in 2018. But before I introduce our guest, I do want to say a word of thanks to our series sponsor, S&P Global. The world's leading organizations rely on S&P Global for the essential intelligence they need to make confident decisions. S&P Global, powering global markets. Now, if you're watching this on YouTube, you might notice that the studio looks a little bit different today. That's because we've hit the road, packed up our cameras, and we're meeting with today's guest in their own constituency office in Chatham and Aylesford. Today's guest has been a leading force in prioritising population well-being in the UK. She's not the first well-being-oriented politician we've had on this show, and it really is heartwarming to see incredible politicians across the political spectrum putting well-being first. Tracy Crouch made headlines when she became the world's first Minister for Loneliness back in 2018. She's also the former Minister for Sports and Civil Society, and she's the chair and co-chair of a number of well-being-oriented cross-party all-party parliamentary groups. But her life has not been without its twists and turns. Tracy courageously spoke publicly about her breast cancer diagnosis and treatment and did so to encourage women to seek earlier diagnosis, which is typically associated with better outcomes. She's also shared her passion for sport and worked hard to add diversity and inclusion to sport across the UK. She's also an FA qualified football coach. Uh, amongst her many other sporting prowesses, she's recently actually climbed Kilimanjaro as well. We're absolutely honoured to be here today in Tracy's office in Chatham and Aylesford, and I hope I've pronounced that correctly. You have indeed. Well done. <laughs> You're so welcome, Tracy. Welcome to Chatham. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Well, I wanted to start because the title of this podcast is Working on Wellbeing. And I'm always so interested in how people start working on well-being. So was there a defining moment in your life um, or any particular reason that led you to in some ways dedicate your career to supporting issues around sport, culture, loneliness and well-being? I think personally, I've always found that physical activity has been something that has made me feel good. Um, and I think I have taken that and developed a policy interest in sport and with that also a policy interest in physical and mental health and I think um, that, that they have combined over time to form something around well-being. I think you know things like 
mindfulness, which is another uh, area of policy that I have been closely associated with, again, came from the personal experience of suffering from anxiety and depression whilst being an MP. Uh, and my own GP talking to me about mindfulness and meditation and doing some classes on that empowerment and then seeing how it has supported me as part of my toolbox of coping mechanisms. So there are things that have happened to me personally that I've been able to translate into policy direction going forward. And it's so powerful you talking about your personal lived experiences as well. Um, we're kindred spirits. I'm also somebody who has a history of generalised anxiety disorder. Um, and I think it's so important that we do talk about it. And you talked about part of your toolkit is mindfulness. Can I ask what else is in your toolkit? Um, <laughs> but there's lots of things. I mean, I, I always try and remain as normal as possible. I think quite often politicians get accused of not living in the real world, you know, not somehow being a, a completely different you know, section of society and humanity. And actually, at the end of the day, we are still human. And I, I think it's very important that we maintain that level of reality. And one of the good things about having suffered um, from anxiety and depression is that quite often people are sat in your surgery mm. and talking to you about their own experiences of mental health. And then, you know, quite often you'd sit there and say, well, what antidepressants are you on? And, you know, they say, well, citalopram. You say, well, me too. What dose? You know, and it sort of kind of almost takes away mm. a, a, an element of that and puts them at ease. So, mm. you know, I really do take pride in, in talking about some of these issues openly because I think the more we can talk about it, the more we can reduce stigma, the better we can help support people with either, uh, you know, mild or significant mental health conditions within our own communities. Um, understanding that sometimes people need a hug, you know, I think is a really important aspect uh, of what I do uh, in, my, in my job. So I do think that, you know, for me, we, we now have this thing about well-being. It's this overarching uh, term. It's a really important term. I don't think we do it properly. And I know we'll get onto that in the course of this podcast. But I do think that we have certain bits in policy terms that all lead to trying to create better well-being in society. Uh, incredible. Um, and, and I want to add, and I know you'll agree with this, if anybody is listening and they are currently grappling with a mental health challenge, we very much strongly recommend seek professional support because absolutely you can recover and you can live um, a, a high quality of life. Um, absolutely. And I think, yeah. you know, it is about understanding yourself. It's about going to seek the professional help. It's also about recognising that there are some things that don't work for you and some things that work better. Yeah. Um, so talking therapies didn't work for me, whereas mindfulness, forest bathing, getting out and going for, you know, a half hour walk, something that really does help, that's not going to help everybody. It's really, really helpful advice. Um, I'm intrigued, of course, by the fact that you were the world's first Minister for Loneliness. I, I believe Japan now also has a Minister for Loneliness and I think possibly other countries. Um, but what led to the UK government making that decision? I think it was around January 2018 to appoint a Minister for Loneliness. So forgive me if I go back into sort of kind of the history of the issue around loneliness, because I think it's a really important yeah. context. Uh, MPs arrive in Parliament, they talk about all sorts of different issues. Uh, I myself had spoken in Parliament about um, loneliness and isolation within older populations. Um, we'd always had things like campaign to end loneliness uh, support um, MPs in those discussions, but it was always particularly focused on pensioners. Mm -hmm. And 
Um, then we had a colleague arrive uh, into Parliament called Jo Cox. Um, and I know you've done a podcast with her wonderful sister, Kim. Uh, and Jo took the discussion on loneliness to a different level. So while the rest of us were focusing on um, uh, loneliness within pensioner community, Jo talked about it very personally. She talked about how it impacted her as a new mother. She talked about it about when she went to university. And so she kind of, I always say that she took the issue of loneliness and she sort of kind of catapulted it into the stratosphere. So when Joe was tragically murdered, there was a real cross-party emphasis on trying to support the legacy of Joe. And one of those issues was to have a proper forensic look at the issue of loneliness. And um, the Joe Cox Commission was set up and it produced a report. And part of the recommendations of that report was that government should have a single point of contact on the issue of loneliness. There should mm -hmm. be a minister for loneliness and that minister should be responsible for delivering a strategy on how we tackle loneliness. And I was um, appointed that minister by Theresa May. I already had responsibility for civil society, so all the charities, and and um, but I also had responsibility for uh, for sport, which was in itself a cross government uh, portfolio. So it, it fit really naturally. Mm. And I was very humbled to be asked to do that to continue Joe's work. And so that was really the sort of kind of reason behind the appointment. And then. We then took that and we produced a strategy nine months later uh, on how we tackle loneliness. And it's really interesting listening to your own evolution, because it sounds like like most people, you may be in the early days sort of fell into that trap of maybe what we call representativeness bias. So when you think about, you know, who might suffer from loneliness, maybe thinking of, of elderly people. And of course, that is a challenge. There is a lot of research showing that, you know, young people, you mentioned young mothers. I saw a survey recently that there was a high proportion of people in the 16 to 24 year age group who sort of suffer. Were there other ways in which stepping into that role changed maybe your understanding of what loneliness is, who it affects and, and what we need to do as a society to tackle it? Well, I think actually it was the role that changed everybody's idea of loneliness, yeah. because I think we had all been just focused on the elderly. And, and and I guess for a while, rightly so. I mean, we had, you know, Esther Ranson doing Silverline and we had sort of kind of particular campaigns that were focused around Christmas and isolated older people. And, and that was fine. There was nothing wrong with that. But nobody had actually done the research into other areas of loneliness, other age groups and so on. Mm. So the, the the strategy and then the research and the, the statistics that were collated as part of that um, formed our all, uh, the change view for all of us. Mm. Um, and that's when work started to be sort of kind of, you know, developed around loneliness in younger people and also loneliness at different times of the year and things like that. So it went from being anecdote um, or individual anecdote, like Jo, so obviously talking about her own, to actual well-researched uh, and statistically backed up evidence to show that it's not just older people. And you're right, 16 to 24 year olds um, are um, more likely to suffer from loneliness than people who are over the age of 65. It changes when you get, as you get older, but actually the acute levels that we're seeing at the moment are in that age group. Does technology play a role in that age group suffering from loneliness? Because um, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? I mean, certainly for, you know, 
elderly people who might have grandchildren living in a different country. I imagine technology really helps alleviate loneliness. But of course, maybe for the younger generation, it exacerbates loneliness a bit. Yeah, I think it's just a, it's a, a um, I guess, a method of, of exacerbating it because you know, younger people tend to be more on their phones, you know, and that perhaps gives them a slight disconnect into what the relationships that they have and what they should be. And I think that's what the definition of loneliness is anyway. Mm. Um, and I mean, I think it's really important to remember that it's a subjective emotion. It is something that we should all experience at some point because it en enables us to, the human instinct to kick in and to reconnect. Um, the problem is when it becomes acute mm -hmm. and that's when it then has the associated health consequences. Um, that's when uh, physical isolation can come in um, because you can be in a group of people and still feel lonely. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, and so I think it's right that we continue to do the, um, the the really sort of kind of detailed research and the gathering of the statistics. Technology is an important part of providing a solution for some people. Mm -hmm. And we saw that during COVID uh, and the pandemic where people were isolated and there was a real rush to you know ensure that people had digital connectivity to keep people connected. Um, but at the same time, if people have, if youngsters have this obscure kind of um, disconnect from reality because of how much time they are mm. in the world of technology, then that's where it becomes challenging. Um, so it's, I, it, you know, there's the, one of the challenges with loneliness is there isn't a single cause mm. and there is also not a single solution um, and technology for some will be an important factor of their loneliness. Yeah. But for others, it will be a solution to their loneliness. Mm. So thinking about your tenure as Minister for Loneliness, and you know, you were a trailblazer. Um, what are maybe the three three policy changes or three deliverables that you're maybe proudest of during that time? So it's really hard to just sort of kind of nail it down to three. I mean, yeah. I think the first thing was that actually um, we opened up the conversation about loneliness. As you know, the British media is is not always kind to government about, you know, the appointment of new ministers, but actually none of the British media mocked us yeah. for the appointment. Um, and it actually started to open up a lot of um, discussion yeah. in some of the more, you know, harsher <laughs> uh, publications about loneliness. So it was about opening up the conversations, reducing the stigma. I think the fact that we were global leaders was really important and we've had people and still continue to have people from all over the world come and talk to us about it. Mm. Um, I met um, a, a UAE minister who had the wonderful title of Minister for Happiness, which was effectively the same thing, slightly rebranded. I mean, I'm disappointed that I never had the title <laughs> Minister for Happiness. I think I would have preferred that. Uh, there's still time. There's still time. <laughs> um, but, um, uh, but also actually looking at gathering the data was a really important yeah. part. And the strategy enabled us to do that. And then the recommendations from the strategy enabled us to continue to do that. Um, the other policy area that I'm really proud of, uh, and it started really well, and then the pandemic paused it slightly, is around social prescribing. Mm. It was actually about people understanding that the answer to everything isn't always a pill. Mm -hmm. And um, you had link workers beginning to uh, operate within 
GP practices who would see somebody and try and connect them to groups that would perhaps help them reconnect back into society. I think that's a really important evolution in the way that we deliver and administer health care and promote well-being in this country. I think that's really interesting because each of us as individuals can actually help with that as well because what you're talking about there is social connections within your community and sort of organising walking groups you know, whatever sport it might be or whatever activity it might be. Uh, and maybe there's an action in there for all of us to think about how much more we can do. Absolutely. And, and again, it goes back to the issue that there isn't a single solution. Yeah. So we looked at all sorts of things and actually the strategy has a whole host of different examples that yeah. work in those communities. Yeah. They're not necessarily going to work in different communities. So there, there's there's a, a highlight of um, a rural community uh, coffee caravan that goes around and like pops up and has coffee in isolated villages um that wouldn't work in my constituency uh we but then there's also friendship benches and what is a friendship bench that sounds exactly what you think a friendship (laughs) bench is it is a bench that people can just go and sit and you know whoever sits next to them they start talking uh ricky gervais actually did um Mm. some stuff after he finished filming Afterlife. There's a bench features quite heavily in Afterlife. And uh, it's about the connection that he had as a a grieving husband with a grieving widow. And um, they talk and they create a friendship through it. And after he finished, I think he donated 10 friendship benches around the, uh, the country. Uh, which was specifically as a, as a consequence of this. And I think it's those sorts of things. Now, those work in some places, they don't work in others. Chatty cafes, wonderful. Right? Chatty pubs. Some pubs have uh, you know, tables that they set aside for people who are by themselves to come and sit. And then everyone knows that that's the table. And then they go sit with them and they talk. Costa Coffee did a whole thing recently, and well, actually, I say recently when I was in office, so not so recent. Uh, similar concept. So some of those things work yeah. in some areas, but they're not going to work in all areas. And you know, the lessons in that I think are applicable. You know, when it comes to any aspect of supporting the well-being of people, you know, we are all different, we are all diverse, and so different things will work for all of us. And I suppose you know, you mentioned that earlier on about when seeking treatment as well. But that maybe maybe brings me on to your former role as Minister for Sports, um, because something that you did a huge amount of was promote participation in sports and particularly promoting diversity and inclusion. Can you talk more about maybe some of the challenges you faced there and how you overcame them? So I can't really recall the, the challenges. I think one of the things is that I passionately believe is that there is a sport or an activity out there for everyone. Yeah. And I get as frustrated when people say to me, you know, I, I don't like sport, um, as I do when people say, I'm not interested in politics, right? <laughs> it's just like, you are because you have a view on something and therefore your view means that you are interested in politics. I think many people have been put off by, let's call it sport, mm. because of their experience in school. Mm. The thing is, is that actually it doesn't have to be about sport in the sense that it doesn't have to be team sports. It doesn't have to be, you know, from a girl's perspective, I went to an all-girls school, you know, we were forced to play hockey in the middle of 
freezing winter and you know netball and athletics and all those sorts of things um and actually i didn't want to play any of those things so i wanted to play football but in my day girls weren't allowed to play football and so you can easily be put off by sport because of your experience at school so when i talk about diversity and inclusion it's actually about encouraging people to do some form of physical activity that they want to be able to do and have access to that. In schools, it's about, you know, if girls want to do, I don't know, hip hop dance classes, then enable them to do hip hop dance classes. If the boys want to do American football, enable them to do American football. You know, it's, it, it doesn't have to be this rigid curriculum of, well, I've got to entertain 32 children for an hour in a PE class, here's a beanbag, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So, um, uh, that's one of the things. The other thing is, is that at, when I first got into, um, when I was first appointed sports minister, we had very few women in the, in, in the top of uh, sports administration. Mm. Um, and, um, it was about trying to ensure that we had more women sat around the table, helping to make decisions that were then relevant to many women and their participation in that sport. And um, so I did set some hard targets around trying to ensure that we have more women on boards in sport. Mm. And I think that has made a significant dif difference. That was just one aspect of the diversity jigsaw puzzle. And there are other parts of that that haven't yet been, uh, have, haven't yet seen the, the same level of progress as women in sport, um, such as BME communities. Um, but that's coming and that will, that will happen. Um, but I think, you know, I'm very proud of the fact that we now have more women participating in sport and we have more women on the boards that, of those sports that then take the decisions. Yeah. And I mean, certainly everything you say rings true. I remember in my childhood, I, I used to love tennis and, and thinking back, it's because actually that was one of the very few sports back in the 1980s, where the women's Wimbledon final was as big a deal as the men's Wimbledon final. Yeah. Um, uh, now we've got, you know, I mean, England have done very well in, in football, haven't they? The Lionesses. And it's just great to see so many women's sports and so many role models uh, for young girls. Um, so I suppose... But I love that. You know, I mean, I uh, went and took my son to a football training session the other day and there's a little girl in his uh, group who is a massive Mary Earps fan. Now, I'm a huge Mary Earps fan. She's the England goalkeeper. Um, she's got real attitude and personality. And I, I, I just like the cut of her jib. I think she's a great role model. I was there when her shirt went on resale, desperate to try and get uh, one, which I was successful in doing. And so was this little girl's parents ready for Christmas. They, she went to, the, to her, her dad and she said, what do you think Mary Earps eats for breakfast? And he said, I think eat the Weetabix or porridge. <laughs> she now eats Weetabix or porridge. And I just sit there because she wants to be like her idol. Her dad is obviously high-fiving himself because it means she's not having cocoa pops. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, I didn't have that when I was growing up. You know, my heroes were male footballers. I have no problem with that because they were great male footballers and good role models and everything else in that's in the football sense but now you have girls that are able to look up to female footballers and the, you know the fact that you have things like fc24 enabling you to play you know female footballers against male footballers or in the same team you know or actually just playing women's football on fc24 i love it it's brilliant it's a complete game changer 
And you are an FA qualified coach. Do you want to <laughs> tell us the story behind that? <laughs> well, actually, that's just, a, it, it, it was an age thing. Um, I didn't start playing competitive football till I was 18 when I first went to university. And um, so by the time I got to 30, because I hadn't been coached properly and, you know, done all the appropriate warm ups and things like that, you know, knees started to go and ankles started to go. But I wasn't ready to give up on the game that I, loved so much yeah. and so I took my coaching badges and I coached a team here in Chatham uh, for nine seasons I think it was and I was the MP at the time as well so <laughs> it's like um, and saw the girls grow they were under 10s when I first started and they were all ladies by the time I left and it was lovely to sort of kind of be a part of their life and I'm glad that they were part of my life as well and now I still I don't coach but I do run a girls after school football club, um, but it's not coaching. I just get them to come along and kick a football and have some fun. I love it. Bend it like Tracy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I still play a little bit myself, but not, um, not like I used to. It's incredible. So, I mean, everything we've discussed so far in your role as Minister for Loneliness, Minister for Sport and Civil Society, it all touches on mental health policy. So how did your role align with, I suppose, the government's wider policy around mental health and population wellbeing? So I was always very careful not to link loneliness and mental health. Um, so loneliness is not a mental health condition. Yeah, Really, really important to remember that. Um, it can lead to deteriorating mental health and also, if you have a mental health condition, you are very likely to suffer from loneliness. Mm. However, um, it is not the same thing. So we worked side by side with the mental health um, team at the Department of Health. Uh, and I used to go and I just sit on mind, um, the mind charity panels and we'd talk about the impact of loneliness on mental health. Um, uh, but it was never the same thing. Okay. No, thank you for the clarification. Um, looking back, because you've had a, such an incredible career to date. <laughs> Much more career to come. But um, what are your three proudest achievements looking back on your entire career? I, there's so, I, again, I can't okay. nail it down to three because, I think there's, you know, I did so much. I had a really wide portfolio yeah. for a long time. You know, I was responsible also for tourism and heritage and gambling. Um, and so there were lots in... Yeah. you know, my portfolio that I'm very proud that I've, I managed to change and shift minds on certain things. Uh, I mean, I'm just very passionate about um, all the subjects that I've ever been involved in. And you talked about the different sort of kind of cross-party groups that I'm involved in. And I continue to be interested in those issues. Yeah. I, I'm very interested in how can we develop the nation's well-being in order to prevent people from getting poorly mm -hmm at some point in their lives. Yeah. And I think if we do the preventative bits better, then we could actually treat people better um, because we can actually reduce the number of people that require the treatment in the first place. So um, for me, one of the things I still have on, on an agenda uh, is to try and create a wellbeing department. So there are lots of different parts across the UK government yeah. Um, which have some small responsibility yeah. for something that you and I would consider to have a well-being outcome. Yeah. But they sit as a sort of kind of non-priority in that department, and yet their value 
is huge. So, for example, if you take our Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, their priority, of course, sort of going to make sure we feed the nation, making sure the farmers are well, making sure our um, uh, environment is you know good and everything else. But they also have things like access to nature. Mm-hmm. And for me, access to nature is huge. That accessibility to something that is free but can have such positive outcomes yeah. in people's health is essential. And yet it's not a huge priority in the department because they're typically making sure that our farmers are supported in order to produce the food for us to eat and everything else, understandably. We have another department, Department for Education, that has responsibility for school sport. Again, it's not the department's priority. The department's priority is to ensure that we go up various league tables around the world, math, science, you know, reading, so on, making sure that we get people going off to university so that we can raise the international standards in in terms of quality and quantity of people having degrees in the country. And yet school support, in my view, is so important because it enables you to concentrate in terms of those you know, achievements and attainment and so on. So it's, it's lost. So if you actually created a department where you had a dozen of those examples mm. becoming a primary focus and you have it you gave it a mission to reduce the budget of the department of health then you know it gives it a real focus and i just sit there and i think we can be doing well-being policy better mm. because it's not coordinated it's not joined up and that's why i would love there to be a complete restructure of whiteboard that has this preventative focus with yeah. the department that enables you to go out there and ensure that people are feeling good about themselves um and that you know in turn i think will make a huge difference yeah and that focus on preventative rather than reactive is is so important it's interesting because you mentioned we did have um uh, kim ledbeater who uh, i know is a cross-party ally of yours um, yeah. and and I, I believe friend um that um she talked about a slightly different approach. Instead of a well-being department, um, that the Treasury has a budget for well-being and every department has their own sort of well-being objectives. Um, how do you differentiate between those two? So I think that's a, it's, a, it's a good idea. I do think the Treasury should have a well-being budget, by the way. Yeah. Um, I think that is something that New Zealand have. It's something that Scandinavian countries have. But the well-being budget is different. The well-being budget sort of kind of looks at um, things around productivity that GDP doesn't to mm. kind of capture. And um, so, for example, I think in um, in New Zealand, I think it has uh, targets in its wellbeing budget that are things like reduce child poverty mm. um, and um, uh, access to nutritional food and so on. And I think in, I can't remember what the Scandinavian ones are, but they're very specific outcomes that are related to a wellbeing budget. Um, I actually think wellbeing budgets are really useful tools, but I don't think that that would necessarily inspire the correct chain reaction that you need within Whitehall, because the focus would still be on the primary purpose of that department. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about, you know, the cross-party approach, because it, it's come up a few times. And I think for me, certainly, um, well-being is just such, it's a topic that impacts every single one of us. There isn't a person on the planet um, for whom that's not a relevant topic. Um, you're chair of 
I mean, there's this, this huge list of all party parliamentary groups and so many of them are welbeing oriented, sports oriented. Um, how important is it for you and um, for the UK government and other governments across the world to take a cross party approach when it comes to really tackling the various drivers of wellbeing? So I think interestingly, um, politics across the world is done um, on a cross-party basis. There is a lot of consensus in most decisions that administrations take. It's just that they don't make the headlines. You know, you don't see them on the news. In our system, the thing that people most know about politics is the adversarial prime minister's questions that takes place where we all have a good old ding-dong, shout at each other, point at each other, and then go our separate ways. Yeah, That's just half an hour of every week that is dedicated to that kind of shouting, finger-pointing. But that's what people think that it's like. Mm. Whereas actually, most of what we do is on some form of committee mm. where there is that consensus. So even pieces of legislation that have nothing to do with wellbeing, it could be the criminal justice bill, for example, with, I don't know, hundreds of clauses and schedules and all these and parts and goodness knows what else, the vast majority of that is done in a committee on consensus, except people don't see that. Yeah. So when it comes to individual topics, and you're right, I am on a number, um, you know, ranging from various sports uh, through to things like nutrition and mindfulness and loneliness. Um, that's about getting changes and getting that cross-party consensus on those changes spoken about. Yeah. I mean, I mean, who doesn't want to tackle obesity? I mean, that's not a party political thing, you know. That's not. Who yeah. <laughs> doesn't want to shine a spotlight on ultra processed foods? You know, it's so there are there are things that we can talk about that just don't require us to shout at each other. And I would say that's probably ninety five percent of what we do. Yeah, and it, it's wonderful to hear that insider view, um, you know, as somebody who has not lived my life in and out of, of politics circles, and many of our listeners won't have either, so it's really, really interesting. But one thing that does strike me is you've achieved a huge amount. How do you look after your own well-being when you're doing so much for everyone else? I actually take it much more seriously now um, than I ever did. Uh, my cancer diagnosis was a real sort of kind of moment for me to step back. I, I always say, and it's the bizarrest thing to say, but I, th I always say that I think cancer saved my life. Um, which ironically, given the fact that at some point it may well come back and kill me, is a slightly bizarre thing to say. But it did actually make me stop. Mm. And it made me sort of kind of reflect on some of the things that I was doing in my life, whether that I was eating the wrong things, drinking too much alcohol, not exercising as much as I would like to. Um, and so after treatment, I kind of changed the way I do things. Um, the word selfish has a negative connotation, and I don't like that it does, but I have become a little bit more selfish. So um, I make time for me. I make sure that I go out and I do my running. I make sure that I go out and I do my walking or I go out on my bike. Um, uh, instead of going to Prime Minister's questions, um, I would often go to a yoga class instead. Um, I went vegetarian. Um, I don't drink more than 14 units a week. These are all things that I now do, which I feel so much better about myself. I sleep, I go to bed. You know, when we're not in session, I'm in bed by nine o'clock. Yeah, you know, I and I, I just I have good phone health. You know, these are all things that I am doing 
not somebody is telling me to do. Um, and I think that's about sort of kind of getting in touch with yourself, being kind to yourself. I'm a big fan of being kind to yourself. It's about reflecting on some of the uh, the changes that you know that you should make. Yeah. Um, and it's about doing them. Um, and it's about grasping those opportunities um, and sort of kind of, you know, really owning them. And if sometimes, you know, my husband makes a mean roast dinner, if sometimes I'm going to have a slice of chicken, I'll have a slice of chicken. I'm not going to beat myself up about it. Um, if I don't, um, you know, go for a walk on a Wednesday like I normally do, I'm not going to be unkind to myself. But I just try and sort of kind of, you know, bring that into my into my life. I, as you said, climb Kilimanjaro, like many people, yourself included, you know, it's always something you say, well, I'd love to do that someday. And when I stop the someday thing yeah. and I've booked it. And, um, and I think you just have to sort of kind of, you know, really factor some well-being into your life. My life is busy, yeah. but I schedule it and I make sure that it's there. But, but you must have learned how to say no. Yes, I have learned how to say no. Um, and um, it's hard because sometimes you do say no to things that you know that other people are going to be very disappointed by. But you also hope that the person that you are dealing with understands. Yeah. And actually, sometimes I say quite openly and honestly, I hope you understand. Yeah. But I'm not going to be at your thing on a Sunday afternoon at three o'clock because that's the time I spend with my family. Time bending like bend, bend it like Tracy. On no, 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 not anymore. <laughs> uh, not on a Sunday anymore. But but that's the point. Is that actually I think if you are open and honest and say to people, you yeah. know, the weekends or this particular part of the weekend is now actually the time I spend with my family because I'm away from them for four days a week. Yeah. People are like, okay, fine, thank you. You know, you just have to be honest with people. Yeah, and I think we all need a reminder that it's okay to be selfish. I like that you use the word selfish instead of self-care. I think they're both important words, um, but sometimes we can beat ourselves up and think that we need to be people pleasers. Um, I, I uh, had uh, on a previous interview, um, Kelly Harding, Dr. Kelly Harding, who, who you may know, she's done quite a lot of research into the physical and mental health benefits of kindness and of social connection. Um, and we talked about uh, setting up People Pleasers Anonymous. It is right now unofficial, but we think this should become an official thing um, because far too many of us are people pleasers and we do need to learn to say no and occasionally be selfish and look after our own health. Put our own life jackets on first. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think the this job in particular, don't yeah. forget, there's always a, you know, um, there's a group of people, a very large cohort of people um, who are what we call floating voters. You know, you have your sort of kind of group who always vote one particular party or the other. And then you have the vast majority of people who basically swing. Mm. And so there is a, um, there, there, there is all the, this kind of desperate desire in politicians to try and please those people yeah. all the time. And it can be quite debilitating. And you sometimes get very, not sometimes, actually all the time, get very aggressive emails from people saying, if you don't do X or Y, or if you do A and B, I will not vote for you. And over time, you know, it's, it's quite a hard thing to start off with, to read things like that, because you can sort of kind of go, oh my goodness me, you know, these people aren't going to vote for me. And I'm, But over time, you get to the point where you go, okay. You know, and so I just write back to people and I say, okay, 
you know, so I, I mean, I'm not sure what you want me to do here. You know, I disagree with you. That's fine. If we have a difference of opinion, we live in a free democracy. You vote for how you like. I've actually started to reply to people saying, it's an occupational hazard. <laughs> if you don't, yeah, I mean, it's just like, I don't, it's not that I don't care because I care, but it's not going to make me curl up in a ball and not myself into a state of anxiety anymore. And what to me is so powerful about that is you've learned how to not let criticism hurt you every time. I think it can be difficult for many of us. Um, sensitive people. I am a sensitive person. I feel every every arrow <laughs> that gets shot my direction. It seems like you've learned to put up a little shield. Um, no, I don't. I haven't um, uh, at all, actually. I think um, I, I don't want to be any less of a person when I leave politics to the person that I came in. And so I am still very sensitive. I just don't get sensitive about that. Yeah. So um, I have I, I have come to terms with the ebbs and flows of politics. And I genuinely think of, um, you know, not being an MP because people decided not to vote for me as an occupational hazard. I think if you're relaxed and content with that, then people can say what they like to you. It's just not going to put me into a ball. Um, but I am still sensitive to people's needs and injustices. And those are the things that I channel my energy in. You know, if somebody comes to me because they're in a crisis, because a system has failed somewhere, that I will get angry and upset about. I'm not going to get angry and upset about somebody telling me that they think, you know, all these mean things about me because I didn't do what they wanted me to do on a vote. Makes a lot of sense. Well, you've given us so much advice. I want to very quickly move to the rapid fire. Uh oh, these are always the sort of kind of more challenging questions. <laughs> so some of these questions I, I will never be familiar to our, our regular listeners, but I think they may be a surprise to you. Okay. So um, imagine you had a time machine. DeLorean, or it could be a car of your choice, and you hop into it, and you travel 30 years into the future, what is the change that you'd like to see? So, I mean, I'm very passionate about the environment, and, you know, I've got a, um, a young son um, who's about to turn eight, and I just really hope that the decisions that we as a generation of politicians is taking around uh, the the environment and the, the future of climate and everything else will make a significant difference in his life. Absolutely. So you were a young son, but you were also young. At, uh, 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 you still are young, but when you were younger, if you could hop into your time machine and speak to yourself when you were 18, what advice would you give that young girl? Do you know, I often think about this and actually I wouldn't change anything that I've done. I, you know, I am who I am today because of the experiences that I've had. And some of those have been great experiences and some of those have been appalling experiences. But nonetheless, they have created the person who I am today. And I am very, I'm a very content person. That's not to say I don't have problems. I don't, you know, like everybody else, I have problems, I have issues, I have challenges. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I still feel very content. And um, I turn 50 next year. And for me, I think that I, I have this decade, despite having a cancer diagnosis, despite having had a child, despite, you know, all of the challenges that has come with it in this decade have been my happiest decade. And that has built on the experiences that I had previously. Wow, thank you. So what's the best you, best advice you've ever received then? 
Um, I don't know. <laughs> Rubbish at listening to advice. Uh, uh, I don't. I. I think you know. Recently, lots of people say be kind to yourself, and I think you know, the more we can say to people, just don't beat yourself up all the time. Roll with it a little bit. You know, yes. I think is the kindest thing that people can say to each other. Yeah, absolutely. What do you wish you'd learn sooner? How amazing parenthood is. Oh. So, um, yeah, I was 40 when uh, Freddie was born. And I think it's just sort of kind of changed our lives for the better. I don't remember what life was like without the crazy pocket rocket in our life. Um, but, um, but then there are benefits of being an older parent as well. So, yeah, I think... Um, it's just an incredible experience. Oh, that's so lovely. And hello to Freddie, if Freddie's listening. <laughs> um, and finally, what do you think is the secret to living a good life? Um, I think eating well, sleeping well, exercising properly. And I'm not just saying that because we're on a wellbeing podcast. I genuinely believe that. Um, I, I do think that, you know, looking after yourself is such an important aspect. Yeah, thank you so much. You've given such brilliant advice and such inspiration today. So we've been honoured to come and visit you um, in Chatham and Aylesford. And thank you so much, Tracy Crouch. Well, thank you for having me.